0: Father, our hearts are stirred today as we have lifted up these songs of praise that our Savior and Messiah is so deserving of. The themes of these worship songs inspire and remind us that without Christ and His work on Calvary, we would have nothing to celebrate, nothing to bind us together here, nothing, Lord, to give us encouragement or hope for tomorrow, nothing to assure us eternal life. But in Him, our Savior, our King, We have all these things and more. This day, we acknowledge the message of the Scriptures, the testimony of the Apostles, the prophecy of those who spoke of old, moved by the Holy Spirit, to reveal to us the clarity and the beauty of the Gospel and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as He has proclaimed in His Holy Word. We thank You that the Spirit is present here today as You have promised, O Lord, to comfort and to lead us into truth. So that though you have ascended to the right hand of the Father, dear Jesus, you have yet commissioned the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit himself, to use these means, these songs of worship, the prayers of the saints, the fellowship of the brethren, the proclamation of your word, to inspire us, to equip us, and to build within us a growing understanding and conviction to take up our cross and to follow our Lord and Savior, whatever the trial and journey may look like. I pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that our hearts would bow before the authority of Jesus Christ and that you would conform us to the image of his perfection, that the standard of truth would inspire us to repent and turn from sin and to stand upon his word as the standard whereby we proclaim the truth of what is holy, just, enduring, and powerful and glorious. We pray, Lord, that as your word is proclaimed, that you would transform us as by the Spirit of God, that we would be transformed indeed by the renewing of our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would do your work, as only you know how, to encourage, you, to encourage the testimony of those who fellowship here, to be bold, consistent, and ever more diligent to proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ alone, Jesus Christ forever. Thank you for these moments we share. And thank you, Jesus, for the blood that you shed to purchase them. May you be glorified in this service and in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, your name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious gift. What a great privilege it is to open up the scriptures together and to encourage our souls by what the Lord has revealed therein and to do so as the body of Christ gathered in the name of our Savior King, Jesus Christ. As you're able with your Bible in open, would you turn with me to Genesis 35 this morning? In a moment we'll stand for the reading of the word verses 6 through 15 as we continue to mark the testimony of Jacob the covenant son in his journey from Padan Aram in something like indentured servitude to his uncle Laban unto the promises of God represented in Canaan and spite of the difficulties and trials that he faces along the way including the latest incident that is. Recorded for us in chapter 34, with great tragic fallout of sin and vengeance, and now the Lord is restoring this covenant family and returning them to the rock of their salvation, the promises of God that were revealed in Bethel so long ago, and it is to that place that He instructs the covenant family now to return. The title of this morning's message, therefore, is Bethel Revisited. Kids, remind us, what does Bethel mean? Shout it out if you remember. The house of God, God, that is correct. The aim of this morning's message is simply this, to remember what Jacob never forgot at Bethel. Jacob never forgot these moments, all the days that he lived. Proof of this will come in the course of our message, even on on his deathbed and his confession there. So significant were these promises and were these moments that we read of today. With that introduction and your scriptures open before you, would you stand with me and let us read God's word together? We stand out of reverence, acknowledging the authority of God proclaimed to us in his scriptures today in Genesis 35, reading verses 6 through 15. Here is the word of God. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who are with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Verse 8, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name alon Bakhuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from and Aram and blessed him. Verse 10, And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Verse 13, Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Another significant moment marked by an altar, by a pillar, and by a confession, by a covenant. You've heard others say, and perhaps you have said this yourself on occasion, I remember exactly where I was when such and such happened. Back in the year, was it 2001, when the Twin twin Towers fell, I was in college, or shortly thereafter, I should say, and I remember exactly where I was during that momentous, life-changing moment in our nation's history. And if you're old enough to remember that, perhaps you recall exactly where you were. This is the way our memories work. We don't remember everything, but our mind, our psyche, our consciousness has the ability to mark things of certain import and associating them with both a place and a time. Uh, Jacob remembered his entire life exactly where he was and exactly the circumstances that we have read today. These memorable instances, we can relate to this in small part, They solidify experiences in our memory by attaching them to a location. Jacob's life is marked by a number of these, by this phenomenon. Each time he is remarkably visited by the Lord, one of these location memories stands out or is marked. And then one, I suggest, that these memories stands out above them all. And that would be our text today. This would be the experience of the patriarch Jacob in Bethel, a place that he named a place whose name he's reminded of after 20 years of wandering and now returning to the area that God had promised and the certainty of what God had said in his word. The place that he named, that is, Bethel, which means the house of God, as young people have reminded us. It is here where he set up his first pillar. You recall, kids, in chapter 18, he sees that dream, the gates of heaven thrown open. And a stairway extended to the earth with Yahweh at its head and the exiled son, Jacob, of the covenant at its foot. And here he took the stone he had used for a pillow and he stood it up. And that was the first pillar that he set up in this same place some 20 years earlier. Now two decades or more later, Jacob is directed to return to this place of covenant revelation. What's important about Bethel? I suggest this above all. It is the place of covenant revelation. God has revealed himself there. That's what's important. It is, in that sense, rightly named the house of God. True to form, God visits him again, and this time to confirm his covenant promises to the limping patriarch, his hip having been struck in the joint at Penuel. Jacob, stumbling now from that place, A weak man, as we see in that physical picture, but also often plagued with moral weakness. Now he receives the source of his strength. He is returned to the anchor and the foundation of his hope, the covenant promises of the God who revealed himself to Jacob face to face at Penuel, and now face to face again, as it were, in Bethel. God confirms his covenant promises to the struggling patriarch, The experience is so moving that Jacob takes it with him all the way to his deathbed where we find some of his last words reserved for recounting this Bethel experience and its promises as he confers the legacy of covenant sonship to the next generation as he speaks with his son Joseph. If you want to touch upon those verses on your own time, chapter 48 of the book of Genesis, verses 1 through 4, Jacob recalls, this very vision and experience at Bethel. Jacob has named various places along the way. This is something that he has done that bears some significance to his life. And we've kind of charted those, connecting the dots of God's faithfulness and leading in spite of Jacob's sin and unto this latest dot we have in our chapter here today, this return to Bethel. Even in this chapter, he acknowledges or ascribes or signs three names. The first in verse 7, El Bethel, which means the God of Bethel, or the God of God's house, if you will. And in verse 8, Elon Bekuth, which means the oaks of weeping or sorrow, where he buries a beloved family member or family servant, uh, as it were, or, uh, in Deborah, who is Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. That's the second name. Elbethel, second Elan Bakuth. And thirdly, Bethel. The memory and the name that was given to this place he establishes once again in his soul and as a testimony for those who would follow. After all, this is the place that he had originally named in chapter 18 when he is, was fleeing his brother's murderous intentions, escaping from. The murderous predations of Esau. He had found hope and the promise of salvation. And Emmanuel, God with me, protecting me along the way, given to him in that dream and that assurance in chapter 18 at this very place. Now there are similarities between what we read here and a number of other portions in Scripture. Bethel becomes a memorial for the continuity of the covenant. Promises are reiterated, they're stated again here, that go all the way back to Jacob's grandfather. Kids, who is Jacob's grandfather? Shout it out if you remember. Abraham Abraham is correct, thank you. Many other similarities in this event are, are, are evident in this encounter, recalling previous visitations and promises. And here's a reason that a commentator, Alfred Barnes or Albert Barnes said, can't remember his name, I usually get it mixed up, explains, and this is a quote, at Bethel, he renews the change of name. So pause, Uh, the Lord renews the change of name, reminds Jacob of his new name, Israel, at at this time in our text. Quote continues, to indicate that the meetings here were of equal moment in Jacob's spiritual life with that at Penuel. It implies also that his life had been declining in the interval between Penuel and Bethel and now had been revived by the call of God to go to Bethel, Close quote. So why are there so many striking similarities between this revelation of the Lord at Bethel and other moments in Jacob's life, including when he wrestled the Lord at Penuel? It's because Jacob needed a reminder there had been a lapse in his faith and in his conviction and now by the grace of God by the mercy of God the spirit the lord has stepped in directly to encourage his covenant son to call him to repentance and by that and then in turn for him to call his family to repentance the beginning of this chapter 35 and in so doing to reset their focus And their priorities and to lead them back to the place of covenant revelation. To remind the soul, wearied by life's tragedies and by personal and family sins, that God is stronger than sin, stronger than exile, stronger than death, stronger than his enemies. These are themes in Jacob's life and he needed to be reminded of them. In the darkness of trial... In the intensity of conflict, these are the things that are easiest to forget. And this is why all of us need to return to the place of covenant assurance. For Jacob, it was a literal GPS coordinate location. If they had GPS at that time, go to this place and reminded of these specific promises. For us, it's turning back to the GPS coordinates within the scriptures themselves. Genesis chapter 18, Genesis 35, and reminding ourselves that in Christ, we are sons of Jacob, as it were. Inheritors, we are heirs of the same promises. And, that, and we have an even better idea what they are because they have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all of that fulfillment is recorded for us in the full canon, all the pages of scripture. Suffice it to say, as we Consider Jacob's testimony, we find him once again face-to-face with God at Bethel. Let me give you a heading and four points to organize our text today as we seek to draw more from this passage. Here's a heading, covenant renewal and confirmation at Bethel. So the covenant is renewed and confirmed. I believe you could say both terms apply at this location at Bethel. Under this heading, we have the visitation occasion, sort of the context and events That's around the Lord showing up. Secondly, we have the sovereign, the Lord, the God of the covenant, the Lord of the covenant revealed, verses 9 through 11. Thirdly, promises are confirmed, 11b through 13. And finally, we have Jacob's submission and worship, verses 14 and 15. Covenant renewal and confirmation at Bethel. First, the visitation occasion. I want you to note that there are circumstances in this text and around this text that accommodate the presence of the Lord. Circumstances accommodating the presence of the Lord. God was working on the heart and moving his son and his family in a call to repentance. And this paved the way for the presence of the Lord to show up in revival and encouragement and direction and purpose. This is a principle we can take from this text and apply to our own lives. one, God had told Jacob, arise. Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the Lord who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And why is the Lord telling him to do so? Because there's big problems in the house of Jacob. His sons had just gone on a murderous rampage. Simeon and Levi have struck down those not only the one who violated their sister Dinah, but other relatives. And they had stolen all the stuff in their city. They'd ransacked the place. They'd killed all the males. They had take, They had killed Hamor, his son Shechem. And they had plundered the city all because, in a violent rage, they were paying back the locals, the Hivites, for the trouble uh, that they had inflicted upon their daughter in her violation. So we have this family reeling from this horrific sin and these tragic circumstances, and God provides direction. What do you do in in a time like this? You return to the place of covenant revelation. You return to the covenant assurances. Return to the perspective of God's word revealed to you in Bethel. So Jacob was obedient. He said to his household in verse 2, and to all that were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. You see this language here is repentance language. Preparing to meet the Lord. It is appropriate that one would change one's garments to enter into the presence of God. And that was a picture in the old covenant in the law. Being suitable to enter even into the tabernacle and temple worship, the priests must be presentable. And as we said before, this principle applies to us as well. When we confess our sin and trust in Jesus, that His death on Calvary paid to wash us clean, and that confession, and that faith, and that step of belief, what we are doing is clothing ourselves, as it were, with the white robes of Christ's own righteousness acknowledging that in Him we are presentable before the Lord. And so for us, as we turn from sin and trust in Jesus to pay for our sin, as we have sung about today, we follow the testimony of Jacob and his household in purifying ourselves and changing our garments and putting away our foreign gods, as it were. Then let us arise, Jacob continues in verse 3, and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the Lord who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. The altar of the Lord, the place for certain, certified, the assurance, the seal of God's direction, God's promise of salvation. It is the place where God had assured him, and then his testimony has confirmed that God will never leave him or forsake him, as we've come to call it, the Emmanuel promise. I will go with you wherever you go, no matter the conflict you face. Jacob is reminded of these certainties and sets the course of his intentions, the direction of his decision, and the purpose of his home, his family, his servants, and the whole cadre of people that travel with him back to the place where God has spoken. And they listen to him. His family submits to the preaching of the gospel through the patriarch. They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods, verse 4, that they had, the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. As they journeyed, here's the Lord fulfilling his word with signs following. Verse 5, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So those are the circumstances that lead up to our moment today. This covenant renewal and confirmation at Bethel was preceded by circumstances that accommodated the presence of the Lord, a consecration, a turning from sin repentance leads to revival. Repentance is the condition of revival. And when the Spirit moves upon a sinful people, a sinful person, a sinful family, a sinful land, it begins with a call to turn from one's idols and to put away one's sins and to acknowledge one's transgressions before a holy God and to leave them at the altar of the cross, as it were, and to trust Jesus Christ to give you his pure robes of righteousness and in that order and only in that order then is the pathway the conditions for revival paved so that now the Lord might do an amazing work reviving hearts healing relationships establishing justice throwing away the idols of our land what a great prayer for us personally what a great prayer and vision for us as a nation the Lord knows, and so do you and I, for we're honest, that this land is riddled with idolatry. We pretend that they're not idols, but they did back then too. It's just the cultural air that they breathed. It was only natural that you would have those ter- teraphim, those household gods, and you would seek their counsel and go on a violent rampage if someone wronged you. It's only natural. It's what everybody does in these kinds of situations. It's the way the culture is wired. And so we live in a time where there are cultural norms, that oppose and transgress the law and the word of God. Yet there is a call for his people to be consecrated and to return to him and to stand upon the foundation of his word and to acknowledge and to proclaim the immutable. That means unchanging truth that his gospel is the only means of salvation and his word judges us as falling short. It does not change. As far as it deems, has deemed we are guilty, let us turn from our sins so that the circumstances of our own lives and the circumstances of our nation might accommodate the presence of the Lord. The occasion is also accompanied by altar construction. Jacob goes back to that place where he had set up that pillar in chapter 18, and this is what he does. obedient to to the Lord, in verse 6, he comes to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who are with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So here at this place, Jacob constructs an altar. He acknowledges God as his salvation and his Emmanuel, building an altar to remember his prior mercies and promises, saving him from the murderous intentions of Esau, delivering him safely to Padan Aram, guiding and protecting him through that servitude under the shyster Laban, increasing his flocks along the way, making him a rich man and influential in the land, and then setting him free unscathed from the clutches of his father-in-law to return to the land, facing the Hivites, facing Esau, and doing so with the armies of God and camping alongside him and coming into the promises and into the promised land, knowing full well if he's honest, From the perspective of God's view, looking over his situation, El Bethel, the God of God's house, has comforted him, has protected him. Matthew Henry says this, The comfort the saints have in holy ordinances is not so much from Bethel, the house of God, as from El Bethel, the God of the house. Ordinances are empty things if we do not meet God in them. What he means is this, an altar in and of itself is nothing. It's just a form, it's just a token, it's just something symbolic. It is what this altar symbolized that is everything. And Jacob recognizes this. He knows there's nothing magical about the place. It is the person who has visited him there that guides him back to Bethel. And kids, let me just give you a little encouragement. I know some of you are considering baptism And we have a baptism service on the horizon, hopefully next month. Baptism, being dunked under the water, in and of itself is just an ordinance, as Matthew Henry says. It's just a thing that you do, but there's something very important that it symbolizes. And what do we remember in baptism? Kids, think of these things. When you're dunked under the water and you come back up, it reminds us that through Jesus, our sins are washed away. It reminds us that the old us that was a sinner in Adam is dead, and the new us that comes out of the water is resurrected in Jesus Christ. Baptism, that ordinance, it reminds us that just like Noah in the ark passed safely through the waters of judgment, so we in our ark or our means of salvation, Jesus Christ, we pass through the judgment waters of baptism uh, safely as well. These are things. Also, baptism is something of a naming ceremony. In this ritual, it identifies us as a person who belongs to Jesus and a person who belongs to the body of Christ. They are our family now. So we receive a new identity or name, as it were, symbolized in baptism. And this is similar to what Jacob is experiencing here. He builds that altar to symbolize to hold his soul accountable so that he does not forget as a testimony to others and a proclamation of the gospel to his family, worship the God of Bethel. El Bethel, the Lord of the house of the Lord. Worship him. Location, the promised land, is the host for this Bethel, the place of God's dwelling with man, when the conditions of atonement were satisfied. And we see shades of this unfolding in the text. And they would be further unfolded in the tabernacle and in the temple. That was the house of the Lord. As we mentioned, the priests would go through a similar cleansing ritual to represent that no sin is tolerated in the presence of the holy. But when God supplies atonement, a way for our sins to be washed away, to be covered, to be paid for, the blood of the sacrifice, the sacrificial scapegoat and so forth uh, represented this, then We have access into the presence of God, and today, as we have remarked, when the seat, the uh, mercy seat, was sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, and even in the Gospel of John, when an angel is positioned at the head and the foot of the place where Jesus lay, symbolizing that Ark of the Covenant of old, that mercy seat in between, now sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, what do we have? We have access through this place and these conditions of God's appointing into the presence of the Lord. This is something that Jacob needed so much, because not only was he facing the trial of horrific sin in his family, he was also facing the trial of death of loved ones in verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called his name Alan bakuth the Oaks of Weeping. There are sorrows that were attending Jacob's way. Shortly Rachel would die. Verse 19, so Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. He sets up another pillar over her tomb. This is a weary, limping, broken patriarch riddled with trial and sorrow and sin. But he has received a revival, an assurance and a calling that will carry him through. This is the occasion of covenant renewal and confirmation at Bethel. Major point two, the sovereign of the covenant, the Lord of the covenant is revealed in verses 9 through 11. God appeared to Jacob again, and he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. Once again, a five-word phrase, the significance of which could easily be missed if we didn't take it in context. Verse 9 again, God appeared to Jacob again. An explosion Across the heavens, a clap of thunder, a flash of lightning. Whatever you need to associate those words with, hear it in your mind's ear. You know, the skies grow dark and then lit up with a blinding light and a crash of thunder and an earthquake. Something like that makes a deep impression upon you. When those towers collapse or when a tragedy falls, when an amazing thing happens, you win the lottery, whatever, you know, circumstances, I always remember where I was, believe me. If you were Jacob, you would never forget this, the Lord appearing to you at Bethel. How significant was this? Well, it becomes more significant when we realize the way in which God revealed himself to Jacob. Verse 13 helps with this context. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Kids, a question for you. If God went up from Jacob, what did he have to do first? If God went up from Jacob, what did he have to do first? little logical dilemma. Anybody? In order for God to go up from Jacob, he must first what, guys? Descend. Descend. Nice word. I was looking for come down, and you stepped up the game with descend. Let's add a con to the front of that. Descend, come down, con with, condescend, a word I often use, and it's a word that powerful import in theology. The Lord coming down to be with Emmanuel promise his son. The the Lord could have revealed himself as he's done before in chapter 18 in merely a dream. He did not reveal himself in dream to Jacob at this time. No, he condescended. He bowed down to be with Jacob. And then later we'll talk about his ascension. But as he stooped low to be with Jacob, We find in this action a pattern that would be repeated and fulfilled throughout the Testament, ultimately looking to Jesus Christ, God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, descending from the pre-incarnate glory that he always shared forever with the Father, taking on human flesh, veiling for a time his glory, and in his incarnation being born in a humble stable to a woman, He condescended, he lowered himself to be with his people. And this picture here of condescension, as the sovereign reveals himself, anticipates God himself coming to man in the form of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to accomplish the terms of our salvation. Another cool way to think about this, in chapter 18, God revealed to Jacob a ladder extending from glory, As Jacob says, truly, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. Jacob sees the gates opened and heaven's staircase touching ground. And now imagine the Lord himself in the second revelation in chapter 35, descending down that stairway, not not merely dispatching his angels, but himself coming down the staircase, as it were, to speak to his son. Powerful. This is a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the incarnation. This is how the sovereign is revealing himself. The presence of the Lord of the covenant is stooping low to accommodate his son and doing so in a way that patterns the very salvation which, which in its fulfillment, would secure your hope and mine of eternal life in the ultimate promised land. Though he stoops low, he brings with him his authority. We see this in the naming of Jacob or a reminder of Jacob's new name. You could say, the Lord said to him, verse 10, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And as Matthew Henry pointed out to us uh, before, or no, I'm, I'm sorry, Barnes, the commentator pointed out to us before, the reason that God is emphasizing this again seems to be that Jacob needs to be reminded of it. He has forgotten that God has given him, to some degree, a new identity. And he is back to his old ways in his passivity, not providing in many cases in these challenging situations, the faith and leadership that a godly patriarch is called to have when it comes to the difficult situations his family faces. He needs to be reminded, you're not Jacob anymore, you're Israel. The Lord, when he chooses a name for his son, we see this through the scriptures, of course. Kids, can you think of somebody else whose name was changed in the Bible? Shout it out if you can think of another example. Sarah, very good. Abraham, another good example. Both the grandparents of Jacob. So Abram, name, Abram's name becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah in the New Testament. Uh, Simon becomes Peter, so, and so on and so forth. What this is is a picture of the authority of the sovereign. We, parents, assigned to our kids, we, we give them their names because we are their progenitors. We're responsible for their existence. And as much as they're fruit of, of us, they're our children, our offspring, and therefore we name them. In a similar way, the Lord names, identifies, grants to his own, his identity. The scriptures speak of the new birth for a reason. Because it's the very process whereby our new identity is received. We have a new progenitor now. We are a new creation, a new family relationship, a new authority, a new sovereign in our lives who identifies our purpose and gives us the answer to who am I? This is is a question that's plaguing and driving insane our culture today. Who am I? Individuals and collectively, we can't answer that question. As we try to do so, the answers become more and more absurd. Maybe I'll try the 275th gender that somebody made up out of whole cloth to try to get a solution to my self-identity uh, problems. Who are you? You, if you are in Christ, are a son and daughter of the Most High. Who are you? Your identity is in Him. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are a slave to Him. Who are you? You are a one-time sinner who is forgiven by the blood that was shed on your behalf. Who are you? You are now a dutiful servant of Jesus Christ to follow him as he gives you the ability to walk in the footsteps that he has created before you, established before time uh, existed that you might walk in them to give him glory. This is who you are. You're no longer Jacob, you're Israel. You're no longer a sinner uh, uh, that, that's condemned to hell, but you're now saved by grace, headed for the promised land of heaven in Jesus. Jacob needed this reminder and so do we, don't we saints? In Revelation 3, 5, these are in your notes if you have a copy. We won't go to them directly today, but in Revelation 3, 5, 12, verse 8, 17, 8, and 20, verse 15, there is that picture in John's vision of the book of life. And within that book are names written. And just as the name Israel, with respect to Jacob, as an individual, is written in the Lamb's book of life, So if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, your name is written there too. Who has the authority to both give you that name, give you that identity, call you his own, and write your name in his book that certifies your inheritance in Jesus. That everything that belongs to his estate is yours and transferable unto you upon his death. That's the authority of the sovereign of the covenant. The sovereign that not only stoops low, but exercises His authority in calling out of us out of darkness into marvelous light, regenerating us and changing us and giving us His marching orders. What are these marching orders? Well, among them are a cultural mandate, as it's sometimes called, and we find this in our scriptures as well. The Lord said to him, I am God Almighty, verse 11, be fruitful and multiply. These are your marching orders, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply. Now, you guys remember, it was hard for Abraham to believe that he would be the father of many nations because he was 100 years old-ish and didn't have a son, at least a biological son between him and the covenant mother, Sarah. Yet God, against all odds, performed a miracle and Isaac was born. Isaac, though, he didn't have a lot of kids either, right? And it wasn't like he was presiding over a whole huge tribe, but things are starting to change. Now in the case of Jacob, he's got 11 sons, a daughter, and he'll have another son uh, or two shortly. And uh, I forget the count exactly. Off the top of my head, suffice it to say, the sovereign has revealed himself and there is a cultural mandate he has given to to reclaim the original instructions given to Adam in the garden. Chapter 128, Adam was given the command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Noah, chapter nine, verses one through seven, the same cultural mandate as has come to be called: be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There's even a promise to Ishmael that he would be fruitful, and multiply. Seventeen twenty, Jacob had prayed over Isaac, a paternal blessing. Twenty eight three, that he would be fruitful and multiply. Now Jacob, the covenant confirmation is here: be fruitful and multiply. In other words, be uh, as you are called to be a parent and an influence to those that God's given you charge over, share with them the truth of the covenant. Build this altar as a testimony to your children that they will not soon forget that I am the Lord, that I have appointed through you and through your covenant line, through your children, through your offspring, a Messiah one day who would save them, have faith in that day on the horizon, a Messiah one day who would fulfill the very promise that the offspring of you And your children's children will be as many as the sands of the seashore and the stars in the heavens. Saints and members of the household of God, if you're gathered in this place again, if you are in Christ, you are a grain of sand in the seashore of God's promises, so to speak, fulfilling the very words to the patriarchs of old. Because in Christ, you've been adopted as a son of Abraham, a son of Jacob, as it were, essentially, and most specifically, a son of Jesus Christ. And as a result, these very words are coming true. Be harder for Jacob, I'm sure, to have faith for this, given the difficulties he was going through. Nevertheless, the word of God was stronger than all of these. And so at Bethel, these things were strengthened for the sake of his soul. Verse 3, or point 3, promises confirmed As we continue to read, not only is Jacob called to be fruitful and multiply, but there's a host of promises that accompany the Lord's word to his son. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body, a people and a kingdom. Now, if you go back, we won't do this today for the sake of time, but Genesis 17, 3 through 8, this was a promise that almost word for word was given originally to Abraham. This multi-generational promise continues It was given to Jacob's grandfather and now reiterated to him. It's becoming increasingly apparent that more children may, yes, be born to the covenant family line. The Jacob's sons will represent tribes, will have more children still, and after just a few hundred years of Egypt, they're going to number a million strong. It won't be long in the course of our scriptures where we will see the overwhelming fulfillment of God's promise in multiplying. Jacob and his seed, such that they become a people and a kingdom. Even Joseph, one of his sons, will foreshadow this promise. Kings will come from you. Yes, Joseph was taken, sold into slavery. Yes, he was thrown in a pit. Yes, he was falsely accused. But it wasn't long by the favor and sovereign hand of God that he was ruling, second in command of the most powerful, I'm sure, empire of the world at the time fulfilling in part a foreshadowing of these very words coming true, kings shall come from your own body. Of course, Joseph is a picture of the king of kings, the king of kings, the sovereign of sovereigns, whom Psalm 2 prophesied that he rules and reigns and has received as an inheritance all the kingdoms, a title deed to every tribe, tongue, and nation, every political body, every social order that has ever existed and ever will belong to Jesus Christ. We look forward to the day when that will be fully manifest, but in the meantime, we call people to bow before their true king. A king, Jesus Christ, the king of kings, has come according to the line of Jacob, and before him we must bow. Why? Because he is a king. That is the fulfillment of these very promises that we read of here. There's also a land promise, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you, and I will give you the land. I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now at this time Abraham has purchased a small plot of land in which you know a few uh, a while back to bury his wife and so forth, and uh, Jake, uh, Jacob has bought a small piece of property there in Sukkoth. We read of that where he set up a booth a chapter or two ago. But that's really all that they can show for. Now imagine someone said, "Hey, you are going to be the Lord of Minnesota, and all you got is a quarter acre to call your own." And you've got a contract for deed on that little piece of property in the corner of Cross Lake, Minnesota, as Piers, Emily, wherever you might be in the surrounding region, you know. And it would be hard to have faith that one day that you would be the Lord of Minnesota. The strange thought, right? Well, what happens as the scriptures unfold, testimony to God's sovereign power alone, is that Israelites, a slave band, goes in and routes the Canaanites and this is according to prophecy all the way back to Abraham. And by that conquering miracle, the Lord shows himself victorious over his enemies and fulfills his promise to his covenant son in his way and in his time such that he gets the glory. You may not feel like more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And as you read the news of the latest political machinations and godless rebellion that legislatures, whether in Washington or in our state, are messing around with these days, you may not feel by that measure that there's a whole lot of hope that your nation is under the footstool of Jesus Christ. But, look to scriptures, return to Bethel, the message of God's assurance in his holy word. We know that nations rise and fall and every one of them is crushed and placed under the footstool of Jesus Christ. If he can crush the serpent's head, he can crush an unrepentant nation. He can bring to the knees the rebellious ruler who seeks to usurp the crown rights of Jesus Christ. He has done it. Think of Nebuchadnezzar eating grass for seven periods of time until he confessed that he served at the mercy and the pleasure of the true sovereign. Pray that for our nation, that they would bow and recognize that Jesus Christ lays claim to this land even as Jacob though he had very little property to his name ultimately by the promises of God laid claim to all of Canaan now as these promises were confirmed they are sealed by ascension verse 13 as we referenced before then God went up from him to the place where he had spoken with him just an amazing if you notice the <coughs> excuse me posture of the lord in this revelation so he said before condescend come down to be with and in so doing, picturing the necessary conditions of Christ's work to come, and then having fulfilled his promises or assured them to his son, he ascends again into glory. A condescension, and ascension. As with Abraham, this happened to him as well, 1722. Abraham received the revelation of the Lord, condescending to him, and again, an ascension of the Lord, preparing the people for Recognizing the Messiah himself as Philippians 2, 6-11, in that famous passage, Paul says, "'Have the same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who, didn't, uh, "'who, though he was in the form of God, "'took on the form of a servant, "'and then he was ascended after his work was complete, "'and before that name, every knee shall bow, "'every tongue will confess that he is Lord "'to the glory of the Father.'" And when he ascended upon his finished work of redemption, We see a fulfillment of these shadows that were pictured of old in our Lord and Savior. Now, finally, what is an appropriate response to all this glorious revelation? Well, Jacob understood what it was, submission and worship. And this is how he responds, 14 and 15. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured out oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God has spoken with him, Bethel. This is a picture of Jacob's submission, a pillar memorial, a monolithic stone of covenant remembrance and testimony. Isn't that a cool phrase? A monolithic stone. It means made of one piece. A monolithic stone of covenant remembrance and testimony. Jacob, by my count, establishes four of these. And we've charted three now. The first was in chapter 18, when heaven's staircase touched earth, a monolithic stone, one God, one stone, one cornerstone, all these pictures associated uh, symbolically with this signal, this milestone, this reference point, this altar occasion. He had set up that stone, signaling, as we mentioned, that God's promises were stronger than the threat of exile as he runs away from his brother. The second stone, we see him erecting there in Mizpah, in Gilead after he would come to terms with his enemy, Laban, who was much more powerful for many years than him and who had manipulated him for a long time, like two decades, he sets up that stone in Gilead and Mizpah. And at that place, that monolithic covenant stone symbolizes that God's promises are more powerful than enemies. And here, having just experienced this horrific atrocity of sin and the fallout and this murderous rampage that his sons have gone on, and then a repentance and a revival in his own household, and then God reassuring him and confirming to him the covenant, he sets up that monolithic one-piece stone symbolizing that God's Word is more powerful than sin. God's Word and God's covenant can free us from sin. There will be one more stone Lord willing, we'll cover it next week. Perhaps you guessed it. After Rachel dies, the beloved bride, yet another monolithic stone is set up over her grave to remind Jacob and all who have eyes to see that the promises of God in the gospel are more powerful than death. So this is Jacob's submission. It's a pillar memorial. Upon this pillar, he worships the Lord and pouring out his offering. He repeats the very action he had done as a poor man running away with little to his name, the clothes on his back, a staff, and maybe a thing of oil. And we surmise that maybe that was his means of exchange, perhaps the only wealth he carried with him as he fled to Paddan Aram. Yet what did he do? At heaven's staircase touching earth, he poured it out, all his means as it were, as an offering before the Lord, as a testimony that I can trust you to care for me and to protect me on my journey. And so now, the covenant renewal, the covenant confirmation, having come to him at that very same place, what does he do? In this posture of worship, he pours out, once again, his drink offering upon the stone. On this pillar of stone, he pours out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. This is, if you will, the upward posture of worship. It's recognizing, as we have studied recently in Psalm 119, that the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will pour out my offering to Him. It's the upward posture of worship. This monolithic stone is sort of the outward posture of worship. It's a testimony, a proclamation to all who see this is where I stake my claim. It's a proclamation that Christ, the living stone, is the only hope for salvation. And in His covenant promises and gospel is hope eternal. So we see this kind of picture of worship coming together. In New Testament terms, Paul sets forth that monolithic stone of Jesus Christ in 11 chapters of Romans. This is Jesus. This is how you might be saved. And then in 12.1, he says, How are we to respond to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, our bodies to him? Upon realizing that Christ, that stone, of, uh, of stumbling for the unbeliever, yet foundation for the saints, that Jesus Christ and his word, his covenant, his promises in the gospel is our assurance and hope. Surrendering, confessing our sin, and then coming in revile of heart and purpose before him. What is our answer? Just like Jacob poured out that oil, we are to pour out ourselves as a living sacrifice in that upward posture of worship. Not because pouring out ourselves earns us salvation, never let it be said but because salvation has enabled us to pour ourselves out for his glory, his kingdom, and his purposes. What should we call this place? It's already been named, but Jacob reminds himself, he called the name of the place where God has spoken to him, Bethel, the house of God. The place where a sovereign and a holy God, through the means of his covenant, has established reconciliation, relationship, covenant, Favor, atonement, and redemption with his Son. This is Bethel. Jesus Christ is the staircase touching ground. Jesus Christ told his uh, servant Nathaniel, told the disciple, would be disciple Nathaniel, from now on you'll see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus Christ, so to speak, is the house of God. That is the place of reconciliation. In him, All the necessary conditions to be reconciled to a holy God are fulfilled. He was Jacob's son. He was Jacob's savior. And if you trust and believe that he died for you, he's your savior too. And if you've trusted and believed in Jesus Christ as your savior and Lord, then heaven's staircase has touched ground in your life, in your heart, through Jesus Christ. And so what's the right response? Pour yourself out in service to him. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Seek to be obedient to your new master. Out of the joy of your salvation, grow in your sanctification, in your walk with the Lord. If you do not know him, in the sound of my voice, what I have proclaimed to you is the monolithic stone, the only way to be saved. And if you do not bow before that stone, Jesus Christ, it will crush you on the final day. Just like that stone rolled and amassed size and weight And smash the idols in Daniel's vision. That's what's happening. Can you hear it rumbling in the distance? We've built idols in our hearts, in our culture, in our nation. Yet there is a stone rumbling in the distance. You can hear it, so to speak, in the spirit if you tune your ear. There is a day of reckoning coming. Bow before the stone, Jesus Christ. Recognize that he is that testimony and the assurance of salvation. He is the only way to escape the wrath to come, and when you do, you will join the triumphant, the heirs to the promised land, who will join his victory train when he asserts once and for all his dominion over all the kingdoms of the world. As the gospels proclaim and as John's vision holds forth, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and Christ, and he shall reign forevermore. Let us close in prayer worshiping him. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the assurance and the promises of your gospel and the promises of salvation, the whole scope of what you have ordained and are fulfilling according to your purposes in your time by the power of your spirit to the praise of your name. I pray today, wherever this message finds us, that it would bring us in submission before you. Whether repentance and faith in the first place, or renewed commitment to pour out our lives as an offering before you. Lord, thank you that you have bound us together in Christ, that you have proclaimed your word to us this day as far as it has been rightly divided. May you write it on the tables of our hearts that we will not soon forget, but that we will follow in its ways and seek to grow in obedience to you this week. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.